1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I had a seminal moment this afternoon. I had, actually this morning, I had my very first meeting with my son and his school counselor. And I have been doing this work for so long, it was kind of bizarre to actually now have that meeting um, with my own child's counselor. So um, I did want to give a shout out to all the school counselors who are out there. Um, We so appreciate everything that you do, and I know that we have um, some school counselors who listen to the podcast, so a special shout out to you guys. I hope that you find what we're sharing uh, here helpful, and if you have anything that you would love for us to talk more about, let us know. Let us know on Facebook. Let us know on Instagram. Shoot us an email. Um, You know, we want to help your lives Uh, and reduce the stress that you feel with family. So, you know, if there's something you, a message you'd like us to give to our students and to our listeners, we are here for you. We would love to do that. Um, I guess we could start with the, hey, if a college uh, emails you and says that they're missing your transcript, the first thing to do is not turn on your school counselor and ask them why they didn't send it. Because we know that you did (laughs) and that these are automated. So, Anyway, special shout out to school counselors. A little bit later in the show, we're going to do a listener Q&A, but before we get to that, um, I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Elise Krantz, who is a former, uh, I almost said financial, but a former admissions officer um, at Barnard and Bennington Colleges. Hi, Elise. Hi, Beth. Hey. So we're talking about test optional today, um, and we thought it would be a good time to revisit this um, for all of those rising juniors as kind of testing continues to be uh, challenging, I guess, in this new world. So um, I think, why don't we start with some of the basics? So what is test optional? What is that all about? So this was a trend. It started, I mean, I feel like it's been maybe a solid
2: 10 years that some schools have been doing it now. Um, And it's this idea that if you choose not to submit your SAT or ACT scores to the college, They won't hold it against you. They will just review the rest of your application. Um, And if you choose to submit it, feel free. So it's optional. It's not a requirement anymore.
1: Right. And then what we saw last year actually was an interesting development, which is that we saw a few schools do what they called either test-free or score-free or test-blind. So tell us a little bit more about that, because that's an important nuance
2: It is. And the language yet has not been ironed out. Hence, we have like three terms for it. We're still as a profession, I think, figuring out what we want to call it. But this notion of uh, score free or test free, meaning that the school won't even consider SAT or ACT scores, even if you do happen to have them, it's not a part of their process. So you don't submit them, or even if you did submit them, they won't even look. It's not part of their evaluation. So that's, it's a, it's a big shift and it's something that we might be seeing more of
0: for sure. Yeah.
1: It's pretty interesting. And the other thing that is, of course, makes it even more complex is that for example, Cornell, which did announce some score free is not score free at every undergraduate college at Cornell. So there are some colleges where you can apply it's test optional. You can submit your scores, they'll consider them. And then at the, uh, some of the other colleges there, They won't even look at them. They call it score-free. It's not part of their process. So, you know, just to add, just to make things just a tiny bit more, more of a problem. Um, So I wanted to, so you mentioned that at least 10 years, and I think there are some schools who might have been doing it for 20 years or so, but last year, suddenly we had an explosion of test optional. So what happened in 2020, 2021 around test optional?
2: So the momentum was building for sure. There were more colleges every year sort of jumping on the test optional bandwagon. Uh, but when the pandemic hit and it became nearly uh impossible from a public health standpoint for students to even sit for these exams, um, colleges began loosening their requirements. And so left and right, we were seeing schools announcing we are now test optional, um, or we are now test test blind or score free. Um, the interesting thing was, though, that some schools said it was just a one year, like mm-hmm. just for this year, just for 2021, we will be test optional. Other schools sort of went out there and, and maybe were predicting that things might be tough for a few years. Um, Like uh, Caltech was one of those, Reed was one of those schools, Dickinson, that they said, you know what, for the next few years, we're actually going to um, extend our test-optional policy or test-free policy. Um, And every school, for the most part, that our students were looking at was test-optional or or test-free, except... The public universities in Florida that was like the one big exception, but pretty much every other school in the country did not require
1: scores right exactly and um and I think Florida really saw the um, saw the results of that choice. Their applications were way down because they were requiring test scores, not the university's choice by the way, it was the board of governors who made that call, so we don't want to knock the universities who really sure. didn't have a hand in the decision um but it is interesting to note that there were a lot of students who literally were unable to take a test it wasn't a case of like oh well i took a test but i didn't like the score if you know if you had wanted to apply to florida you needed to send a score but i think what they saw is that there were so many kids who were just literally unable to take a test and there um, were
2: students you know for whom if the nearest testing site would have been two or three hours away or they needed to fly to the nearest state. So it wasn't even an issue of, you know, there, there weren't any locations near them or it was a public health crisis. It was simply, these were not available to these students. And so colleges just had to adapt.
1: Exactly. I love how when people flew to other States to take the (laughs) test in varsity blues, that was like a disaster. (laughs) Now we're like, please go fly to other States. Sounds like a great plan not really a great plan. So how, how many, what's your sense of how popular it was to apply test optional this year? I was
2: looking for some numbers. I'm such a statistics person. I couldn't find anything yet for early action, early decision schools announcing how many of their applicants chose the test optional path. From this past cycle, but just here within Bright Horizons College Coach, there were a pretty significant number of our students um, that went that direction. So for most of the counselors on staff here, they had at least a few students. I know some counselors said it was like, you know, maybe just a couple, others said it was up to 40% of their caseload that. That went test optional. I myself had students who didn't take the test at all mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons and went test optional to all of their schools. So it was definitely a change from previous
1: years. Yeah, it certainly, I think in the past that the theory has always been, well, they're test optional, but they don't really mean it. And in fact, one of our very early um, segments on this show six years ago we invited uh an admissions representative from american university who is uh, a university that has had test optional for a very long time to talk about how it's exactly not that that really truly they meant test optional this year was obviously a little bit different right there were a lot of schools where their kind of their hand was forced a little bit um because they knew if they didn't let kids apply test optional then they might see similar drops to the way that Florida did, and no one could really afford that this year, or no one thought they could afford that this year. Um, Of course, yeah, applications are way up. So what's your sense of what's going to happen in 2021, 2022? Please predict the future, because we've all been (laughs) so successful at it recently. (laughs) Right.
2: I mean, it's we're not even through this year's cycle yet, and there are already juniors, understandably, worrying and asking us on a regular basis, what should I be doing? What's happening next year for testing? Um, there have already been a few big changes that have been announced by the College Board. Um, the first, which we all rejoiced over, I think, was that the subject tests are now um, not even an option anymore. The the These were the one-hour exams, like biology or math or French, um, where you would they would often supplement the SAT exam, um, but they're no longer going to be available even as as scores. So no colleges will be requiring those anymore, which is great. The SAT um, also did away with their optional essay section. So that's no longer something that students have to worry about. So Mm -hmm. those are two big changes that have already affected um, this year's group of juniors. Um, But I do think that more and more schools are going to be extending their test optional policy. Some schools have already announced it. Um, But it's, it's definitely something that we're going to see the list continue to grow, I think.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right. Um, And then that gets us to the trickiest part, right, which is what is you know, what's your advice if you're a junior, and you are trying to decide, do I take the test? Do I prep for these tests? What should I do? What's your best advice?
2: I think for students um, for whom they feel comfortable taking these exams and they have access to a testing site and it's not causing them undue stress, register, at least give it a try. Um, There will likely be some colleges that would like to see it, even if they are test optional, like you mentioned. Um, You know, Some students for whom testing is a strength, it can help their application. Um, So for those students, certainly, you know, certainly try to take it, but there are There are absolutely going to be students out there that it is it is not a a source for them that they feel like will will bolster their their application. Mm -hmm. Um, They they won't have access to this this exam. They don't have adequate preparation for the exams. And for those students, I'm sort of saying, don't stress, you know, if it's not going to work out for you, there'll be plenty of colleges that will continue that test optional trend next year, that you'll still find a lot of options, even if you don't take the exams. Yeah,
1: I, I would agree. And with everything that you said, I mean, I think our overarching message here is you should not be risking your health to take these tests. Um, if you can do so safely and you feel like, like you said, there's the potential that it might be a positive, And so that's something you'd like to add to your file awesome. But if, if you have any inkling at all that really this is, you're going to put your life in danger, you're going to put the lives of those around you in danger, or it would take so much for you to prep and get ready to take these tests, then the answer really here could be just let it go. Um, so anything else that you would add around this, Elise, before we wrap up? Um, for, for students who are wondering, how do I find
2: out? about where do I find what these colleges are doing, certainly go to the college websites directly. But there's also um, the nonprofit organization, fairtest.org. They are maintaining a list of all of the schools of their test optional status. And so that's also a great website to check.
1: Yes, love that website. Elise, thank you so much. And thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to see you. You too. All right. We are going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're answering all of your questions. So I don't see how you could possibly go away. So don't.
3: What's
0: happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter? You can find us at Voice America TRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back. Shannon My generally my partner for the listener Q&A, is here today. Hi, Shannon.
3: Hi, Beth. How are you?
1: I'm good. For those of you who are brand new to the show and are thinking, who is this Shannon person who I've never seen before? <laughs> She's a former financial aid officer, both BU and Tufts. We often do this listener Q&A together. Um, you guys sent us a lot of questions, a lot of times you are submitting them on Facebook and Instagram, and we want to thank you for that. If you ever yeah. did want to send in an email address or to an, send in an email, our email address is gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. So sometimes Instagram, Facebook, just a little bit easier. You could follow us and yeah. um, just submit your questions there. But we're going to start with a question for Shannon. And all right, Shannon, this comes to us from Christine who submitted her question on Instagram. Yeah. And woohoo, she says, she asks, if a student has multiple merit offers from schools that are slightly lower selectivity, should those all be submitted if asking for an adjustment? In this year with ongoing virus uncertainty, what is the best time to ask for an adjustment? So two-part question.
3: Yeah. Um, in terms of should you submit all of your, if you have multiple merit offers, should you send them all in? You know, there are no hard and fast rules. I would lean towards not doing that. I think it sort of minimizes the, what you want to create in the mind of the admissions officer is the gentle threat that you're going to go elsewhere. If you throw at them, you know, every offer under the sun that you have, I think that that's less meaningful than perhaps providing One competing offer that you have that is really tempting, you can I I can sort of equate it to you know buying a car and going to a car dealership. If you're looking at you know a forty thousand dollar car and you want to get the best price, you don't say to them, "Look, I could go to uh, Toyota and Honda and Hyundai and Isuzu and Subaru and Chrysler and." every dealership under the sun and buy this other car for 10000 or 15000 or 20000 When you give them too much, you, there's nothing for them to work with there. Whereas if you say, hey, I'm looking at a very similar car at the dealership down the street for $500 less, Can you beat that? That's something they can work with. And that really creates a legitimate threat that you're going to go down the street. Um, So I think it's sort of the same thing when negotiating a scholarship offer. You don't want to give them too much where it all becomes kind of meaningless. If you have one nice offer from um, ideally, you know, a similar school or competitor school, that's the ideal. Sometimes you don't have that and you work with what you have. Uh, I think that creates the more legitimate threat that you're going to go elsewhere, take that other school up on their offer, as opposed to just throwing everything at them. I think that that's less meaningful.
1: Right. And I would think too, if I was, you know, it's human nature, right? If you have five offers, And they're all pretty solid as that sixth college. You might just think, well, they have five offers already to choose from this. I'm going to spend my time on this student who feels who seems really interested in us. So, yes, that makes sense to me. Yeah. All right.
3: OK, so we got a question for you from Aparna that she submitted through Facebook. And she asks regarding student research that is published. How do admissions officers assess the credibility of the research? There are so many journals, how does one know which one is credible?
1: So this is a good question and I think this raises a larger issue, which is um, what you can expect admissions officers to actually know. So it really shouldn't surprise you that for most schools, admissions officers don't know what the research journals are. They're not really there to assess necessarily the credibility of the research itself Mm -hmm. or even of the journal. What they're trying to get at is an understanding of why the student did the research, what was compelling about it, um, how did they carry themselves while they were doing the research. So there are a few suggestions that I would have here. So throw away focusing on the journals or where they got it published and instead focus on... Um, a short abstract, very short, one paragraph that in layman's terms explains what the research was. That can go in the additional information section of the common application. Or if the school doesn't take the common application, it can go in their additional information section. Or they may even have a section for, hey, if you did research, give us an overview of what you did. Um, so that's a, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, um, this is... Generally schools, most schools will accept an additional letter of recommendation. We've talked about this before, the goal is not to have 20 additional letters of recommendation, or even quite honestly, three additional letters of recommendation. I have colleagues who will say two extra is okay. I personally think one extra is your max, and I really encourage not doing more than that. And from my time in admissions, I can tell you that if I had a student who had multiple letters of recommendation, I read them in the order they were in the file, and after two or three, I stopped, right? So I read the two teacher recommendations, and then if they had extras beyond that, I would read one of those. And if you submitted three and the third was the best one, I wasn't going to read it because I didn't have time. Right. So you want to, it is really, really valuable. And I realize I'm getting on a tangent here a little bit, but it's really (laughs) valuable to edit down to the essential stuff and not just throw everything at the admissions officer and hope that they will look at it all. And because quite honestly, they likely are not going to right? so you don't need to send a copy of the journal you don't need. Maybe you have a link to your research. But maybe you do that on a LinkedIn page that you set up for yourself, where you collect all of this information. And then if you have an admissions officer who is interested and has the time to dig in, they can see it. But through that LinkedIn, Or if the school provides you an opportunity to provide a link to your larger research. But that small abstract is your friend. And then a letter of recommendation from a person who ideally maybe mentored your research. And the kinds of things that you would look for as an admissions officer, the similar things that you would look for from um, a recommendation writer. Um, Depending on the selectivity of the institution. So if we're talking about some of the most selective schools in the country, we're looking for things like the student is working on par with my college seniors, or I've worked with 200 high school students doing research. And this one stands out particularly because of X, Y, and Z. Or um, we have seen them where um, in our former lives as admissions officers, where it might've said the only high school student in the state to present his research um, at our um, statewide professional conference. So, the the recommendation writer can provide the context to share with the admissions officer how compelling that research really is. So, again, your admissions officer is not going to assess the quality or the way in which you used the scientific process or even the results that you got necessarily. What they are going to be looking for is support that this was a really well done thing. And oftentimes that's going to come from the recommendation writer.
3: Got it. And I know that you have you and the other admissions folks on our team have talked about the length of time you had to read an application. Mm -hmm. And I think parents might be shocked at how short a time is. So you really have to cut to the chase and less is more.
1: Yes, less is almost always more. There are a few exceptions. But usually that's like a homeschooled student or a student with a lot to explain. Mm, Even then, less is more. You want to get it down to the key elements that the admissions officer really needs to see. All right. Next question comes to us from Natalie. Natalie says, my daughter will be applying to some local schools so we can save on room and board. We will likely not qualify for much need-based aid, so we're striving for merit by applying to schools where she will be above average for typical admitted students. This all sounds great great right now, right? Um, My question is whether or not she should state she is seeking on campus when applying to the schools and financial aid forms or state off campus with family. My concern is that the schools will offer less merit if they know she will commute rather than live on campus. Interesting.
3: Yeah. So I think my short answer to your question is simply to be honest. If you know for sure that she is going to live at home, then you should say that. Um, on the application if you think that there is some possibility maybe depending on financial aid or scholarships that she will live on campus then that's what i would say i basically i would go for the highest cost possibility that is actually a possibility for you Um, because what will happen is the I know you're you're thinking mostly about merit. You say you might qualify for some, but not much need-based aid. In the need-based financial aid awarding process, they're going to award her based on what you report, Um, the living arrangement that you report uh, and you will qualify for less need based financial aid if that living arrangement is living at home. Essentially, there are um, budgets set up for students living on campus, uh, off campus in their own apartment and then living at home and the cost of attendance of the school that the financial aid office is using um, when determining financial aid eligibility is lowest for those students who are living at home, meaning you naturally qualify for less financial aid because your costs are lower. Um, So If you thought that there was some possibility of her living on campus, I'd recommend indicating that to start, they will award you then financial aid based upon that higher on-campus budget, But here's the thing, if you then decide to live at home, because, of course, you have to notify the school you're going to live at home rather than in the dorms. Um, They need to know that information to figure out who's living in what dorm room. Once you let them know that you are living at home, if you had initially indicated that you'd be living on campus or awarded financial aid based on that budget, Once you tell them you're living at home, they adjust your financial aid to account for that. So eventually, your financial aid is going to be based on whatever you actually end up doing. I would recommend, again, if there's any question in your mind at this point, going with the higher cost on-campus arrangement to start, simply because that will uh, likely get you the... Uh, the most potential for financial aid to start, and if you kind of did it in reverse, if you said you were living at home or awarded a small financial aid package to start, then decided to live on campus later, the school might have already run out of financial aid funding at that point. And even though you'd be eligible for more aid, they wouldn't have the money to give you. So I would err on the side of caution, assuming the, the higher cost Um, living arrangement to start. But again, only if it's a real possibility. There's no use telling them on campus getting more financial aid for that when they are eventually going to reduce it anyway if you live off campus. And all that really relates to the need-based financial aid. In terms of merit scholarships, I would say a school will typically not award you less merit scholarships um, if you're living at home rather than living on campus. Um, the merit scholarships usually do not relate to your on-campus, amp, on-campus or off-campus living arrangements. Um, I would say sometimes maybe like the um, biggest, most prestigious um, scholarships that a school offers might have an on-campus living requirement. Like big old full scholarship that covers tuition and room and board, Um, you might have to live on campus to keep that room and board portion. Sometimes, not always, some schools will allow you to carry that um, excess funding, you know, on an off-campus living arrangement. Um, a smaller, mer- kind of more typical merit scholarships, it might be, you know, for $5,000 here or $1,000 there, typically don't have any kind of on-campus living requirements. So I would say in general, it doesn't really make a difference for merit scholarships most of the time. And again, if you said you were living on campus in order to go for that big, giant, full-boat merit scholarship and then you tell them you're moving off campus well then they'll adjust things later so it it will eventually catch up with you be honest but if you're not quite sure yet go with the higher cost living arrangement I'd say
1: well and if you got one of those big giant packages that are so rumored but there really (laughs) aren't that many of those but if you did maybe that would be the ideal because perhaps your daughter wants to live on campus and so then that would make that possible right Okay, I think we have time for one more question before we go to break.
3: Okay, Lisa asks, I know that the College Board is eliminating subject tests and the writing section of the SAT, but what if some schools still require them and I don't have them? Should my student try to take the subject tests in May and June just in case?
1: The answer here is no, because your student cannot unless they are international. Um, And so for starters, no colleges are going to require them because they literally do not exist after today, after the College Board made that announcement the other day. They are allowing them for international students only in May and June, and then they are done. So if you are an American-based family, if your student had registered for them in May and June, they were unregistered. Unceremoniously dumped, (laughs) shall we say, from taking those subject tests. So it is literally not a question of whether you should or should not take them. You literally cannot take them. If you have scores already, um, then the individual schools will set a policy and it's certainly possible that they will consider them if you want to submit them. Um, I would say that most students won't have them already who are currently juniors, but there are some. I have worked with students who sometimes do a subject test at the end of 10th grade or sometimes even at the end of 9th grade. But for the most part, most students don't have them. You will not be penalized for not having them. The only thing that they could do is potentially add if that's a school that's willing to still look at them, but you have no choices to make. These are done. Um, all right. Well, with that, I rarely get, do I get to give such an easy answer? I know. Easy,
3: short answer. Easy, I love it. Easy, short
1: answer. Um, all right. With that, we are going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're just going to basically keep doing more of the same. And uh, so we'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
3: What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN.
0: When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now... Back to the show.
1: All right, welcome back, everybody. We are answering your questions and we are just going to get right back to it. Of course, I have to get back to my screen with the questions (laughs) on them. Um, I think the next couple of questions are both from Natalie, but we'll do them one at a time. So, Shannon, Natalie asks Are 401k contributions still going to be added back as an untaxed income? For October 1st, 2022 FAFSA. Um, and she says, as a result of the CARES Act changes to the FAFSA.
3: Right. So what she is talking about, um, the October 1st, 2022 FAFSA, that is the f- that's the start date, October 1st, 2022, when you can complete the FAFSA for the 2023-24 school year. And what Natalie is referring to here is she references the CARES Act. It's not actually the CARES Act. The CARES Act was legislation that was passed back in March, but there was additional um, COVID relief, an additional COVID relief package that um, went through in legislation at the end of December. Um, It doesn't have a nice short, sweet name like like the CARES Act, but in in the midst of this about 5,000-page bill, There was a little 200-page section at the end about FAFSA simplification um, that made a lot of changes to um, the FAFSA form itself, reducing it from 108 questions, as it is in its current state, to for the 23-24 school year will be reduced down to 36 questions. Um, So a dramatic cut in the number of questions on the FAFSA. And one of the items on the FAFSA that looks like it is going away um, based on that legislation is the um, the counting of 401k contributions as untaxed income. Um, This has always been kind of a rumor that's been floating around that. If you contribute more to your 401k, that will reduce your adjusted gross income, and therefore, you know, you'll look poorer, so you'll qualify for more financial aid. This has always been a myth floating around that we've had to debunk all the time, but it looks like, as I read this new legislation, that um, it's not going to be a myth anymore, that they will, one of the... they got rid of a bunch of questions about on tax income, and it looks like the 401k contributions are included in that bunch that's going away. So I do not believe they are going to ask about your 401k contributions anymore on the FAFSA. Now, a few caveats to that, because this is not one of those short Never and simple. answer <laughs> questions. Um, this legislation just passed. We have received zero guidance from the Department of Education on the implementation Uh, of this new legislation. Again, goes into effect for the 23-24 school year, Um, so no changes until then. Uh, But what typically happens with legislation like this, you know, something that's one line in a bill passed by Congress, then results in, you know, dozens and dozens of pages of guidance from the Department of Education. And um, very often, they interpret things just as as I would, sometimes (laughs) they don't. (laughs) So, and sometimes they don't interpret things necessarily the way people in Congress thought they should be interpreted. So that is all to say that we have yet to hear from the Department of Education on any of these FAFSA changes. So we're still in kind of a wait and see approach about how all of this plays out. Um, So that is the first caveat. Second caveat is all of these changes are just to the FAFSA form and just address changes in federal financial aid eligibility. Colleges that use the CSS profile form to determine their institutional aid eligibility, um, these changes don't necessarily affect profile schools at all. Um, Again, remains to be seen, will the profile make any changes to their form or will the college board make any changes to the profile form? We don't know that yet. So if your child is applying to colleges that use the profile form, it is very likely that the 401k contributions will still count as untaxed income. Um, So that's caveat number two. Um, And then the, the other thing that I would just say about this is so if um, your 401k contributions are not counted as part of your income when determining financial aid eligibility, theoretically, that may make you have a little bit higher financial aid eligibility. This is not going to make you know someone who was not going to qualify for financial aid all of a sudden qualify for tens of thousands of dollars of financial aid. It's not going to make that kind of difference. Um, but it could theoretically. Contributing more to your 401k could increase your financial aid eligibility uh, somewhat, Um, but you always have to make sure that you are thinking about not just what is best for financial aid eligibility, but what is best for your finances overall, what is best for your family, so put more in your 401k Maybe you qualify for a little bit more financial aid, but now that money's in your 401k and you okay. don't have it available now to actually pay for college. So there's always you know, pros and cons and you have to weigh things and look at your financial situation as a whole. Um, making this move might increase financial aid eligibility. It also makes the money less available to actually pay for college. So do you have other ways to pay for college? Uh, it, it's not gonna be kind of a one for one Um, Result where anything you put into your 401k now you're going to get it in that much increased financial aid eligibility. That's not going to happen. So, do you still have the funds to be able to pay for college while increasing your 401k contribution? You just need to weigh those things out.
1: And because this always makes my head hurt a little bit, (laughs) yes. When and if all of these changes are in effect in the FAFSA. What year would you need to theoretically start putting more? If you were going to follow this and say, I'm going to put more yeah. into my 401k, what's the year when you would need to start doing that? Because it's not this year.
3: It is actually this year. Oh, it is. So, so, yes. It makes so, my head hurt. I know. <laughs> so the FAFSA asks about your income from what they call uh, your prior, prior year income. Such an awkward term, but <laughs> it's your income from the year two years prior to the year you're applying for aid for so for um, if you're applying for aid for the school year that starts in 2023 they are looking at your 2021 income so it is in fact right now right so if
1: you have a class of 2023 i.e if you have a sophomore Yes, this is the year to do this. If I had the exploding <laughs> head emoji available to me, I would be planning that right now. But yes, yes,
3: and, and of course, just also to throw the point in there that you do have to apply for financial aid for all four years of college, right. um, based on the the year prior prior to to that year. So you know, even if you have a junior right now and you're thinking, "Oh, I have a junior," this doesn't apply to me uh, because I'm going to be applying for aid for the twenty. 20- 23 school year yes i remember you're going to do that based on the current regulations and then you're going to have to apply for financial aid for their sophomore year of college when the new regulations go into effect
1: right so this is going to impact me because my son is a junior it will impact me for his sophomore year of college exactly right on. Yes. very interesting okay yes. awesome
3: Oh, and actually, I'm sorry, Beth. Can I just throw one more thing in? Because this just rem- r- reminded me um, that somebody actually asked about um, this uh, new legislation and how it would affect um, some things having to do with the FAFSA in the last listener question segment we did last month, which I think I did with Sally. You weren't there this week. And I forgot something. And then after this, this segment... Um, was recorded I was kicking myself for forgetting it and I was talking about kind of the basics of of some of the changes and who it might affect and a very important um, group of folks that I totally neglected to mention um, where the changes might make a big difference for are those um, families that have multiple children in college at the same time Um, it it could have a big effect on potential financial aid eligibility. Under the current regulations, your expected family contribution is split between all of the kids that you have in college. Um, Under the new regulations, um, first of all, the expected family contribution is not going to be called that. It's going to be called the student aid index, but it's not going to be split among the kids you have in college. So, you know, currently, if your first Child goes to school, you have a $30,000 expected family contribution, and then the next year a younger sibling is also in school, that $30,000 contribution gets split between the two kids. Now they each have a $15,000 contribution and each are eligible for more financial aid. Under the new rules, that split is not going to happen, at least in terms of the awarding of federal financial aid. Schools will have to decide what they want to do um, with their own institutional aid and how they want to award that, Uh, but that's just another. Big subset of people that these regulations uh, may affect pretty dramatically in terms of their financial aid eligibility. And I totally forgot to mention it next month, so I just, <laughs> last month, so I just wanted to throw it out there so folks are aware of those big changes to come.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we don't have to really dig into it, but I know that people were initially very much up in arms. But for, you know, we have some colleagues with twins or <laughs> multiple kids, and then you have a family like mine where we have two kids, but my stepson is already out of college and my son will not start college for another two years, year and a half, it sort of doesn't seem right, right, that we will not get a break. We will pay for two yes. kids to go to college, yes. um, and we will pay more than if we had had those kids within a year of each other or the, at the same time, where suddenly we would then pay less. I mean, I can understand both yeah. perspectives, but it is, it is interesting because it does feel kind of fair,
3: Right, yes. So that, that. And, and that is the argument that it the current system is unfair where it sort of rewards families for having kids close together and punishes those that, that have kids spaced further apart and that is not an equitable way to award financial aid. Um I mean, you, you could argue that what they ended up doing is to say, okay, so nobody gets the benefit. Right, exactly. <laughs> they could have done the flip side and said, everyone gets the benefit. If you have two kids, even if they're spaced far apart, we're going to do some sort of accounting for that, which normally isn't done. They decided not to do that. So now everyone is treating...
1: Treated equitably, the same way.
3: <laughs> equitably worse.
1: <laughs> it's right, exactly. It's fair to nobody now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Uh, that sounds like life a little bit, right? Exactly. Yes. Right. Okay. So got? the
3: next okay. question for you, Beth, is from Laura, and she says, "Are published GPAs on a college's freshman profile usually weighted or unweighted?" if a school has a certain GPA cutoff to be admitted into a program, for example, the Kelly School of Business, is that GPA that they advertise usually weighted or unweighted?
1: So there is no usually. Every school (laughs) is going to do this um, according to the way that they want to do it. And I think I always want to point out that Data can be manipulated, right? You schools are want to present the data in the light that they feel is best for them. Um, We live in a world where somehow, if something is slightly more out of reach, we want it more. And if it looks like we can have it, we don't want it. (laughs) Right. So what that means is that a lot of at a lot of these colleges, and I have this happen every year, where families will go out and tour schools and come back and say, "But I don't see how he's going to get in anywhere. Everybody's got a you know a four point zero average or a three point seven average." And I always have to say, we need to take a step back and understand. We don't know how they're calculating that. You can ask, and I certainly would encourage you to do that. So if your son or daughter has a list of schools that – your or your child has a list of schools that they're interested in, um, you know, to – it's possible to call them and say, what do you – you give us an average GPA. What is that based on? Most schools are going to recalculate a GPA using their own system, and those systems are going to be different from school to school, right? Um, some schools will lift a GPA directly off of a transcript, but then you're dealing with the different systems that all different schools use. So, you know, here where I live, in the town where I live, they're on a 6.0 system. Why? I don't know, but they are. <laughs> Many schools are on a 4.0 system. Some, I used to read files with schools on an 11.0 point on a 10 point I saw schools with no grades I saw schools with only letter grades and no pluses and no minuses again (laughs) why I don't know but this is how those schools do it and colleges are similar so I would say that you can learn a little from what is published but I would take it with a huge grain of salt Um, and really understand that it's it's almost impossible to make an apples-to-apples comparison of your GPA and the school's published GPA. You just, unfortunately, you can't do it. And here's the other challenge, right? So you go to the most selective schools and they are at pains to downplay the the level of success of the students that they admit. So they won't really get into GPAs at all. Or if they do, they will say, hey, we see everything. And if you've got a few Bs, no big deal. One of the reasons for this, as someone who used to stand up there and say that, is that you really don't know who's in your audience. And you you are reviewing each file individually and you don't really, you don't want to scare anyone off. You don't want them to feel like, oh my goodness, I have no shot. I'm never going to apply. Because even the most successful students could probably walk away thinking that they had no shot. So at those schools, you're trying to downplay. And then there are other schools where if their GPA isn't high enough, they'll, people will just dismiss it oh, well, then nobody who goes there is smart. That's not interesting to us. Their average kid has a 3.0 or 2.9. So they do their own weighting and judging of the stats, and then they present you with what they think will be most appealing to you. So stats tell you some things, but they don't tell you everything. I think much more um, helpful are ranges of, you know, ranges of GPAs and test scores, and kind of being in the middle 50%, depending on the selectivity of the school, is kind of what I would aim to be middle to middle 50%, slightly higher. Some schools you can get in if you're slightly below the middle 50%. You know, that's when you look at um, statistics on What percentage of the applicant pool are they admitting? You know, so there's so many different things that go into this mix that essentially, for me anyway, I find those GPAs to be virtually worthless. (laughs) I I mean, it sounds harsh, but unless you understand how it's calculated, you really can't extrapolate. So I think that's the key. You have to understand how it's it's being calculated.
3: Right, and if you're, you know, a tenth of a point, Below, that does not necessarily mean you're not getting in, and if you're a tenth of a point above, that doesn't mean you're a shoe-in because you don't know what they're doing behind the scenes.
1: That's exactly right. One one statistic that we have thrown out there is that if a school is admitting more than half of their applicant pool, you can make some fairly good assessments about if you are somewhere in the middle 50%, you're probably – you know, could feel pretty good about, okay, I think my chances of getting in here. But when you drop below 50%, that's when things get a whole lot tougher to call. So, all right, we have not that much time left, Shannon. Is this last, this other question we have for you, is it really involved? Or should we just do another admissions question? And Save that one for the next. Uh,
3: Yeah, maybe we save it for next time and do an admissions card. Natalie, we will come back to you next (laughs) week. That one might take me a while. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. um, Deb's question. Um, You look okay to you, Beth?
1: Yeah. If okay. it's the next one, it should
3: be fine. Yeah, okay. Are dual credit courses or AP courses better? Should my student do a mix of both or a full-time dual credit program if he is interested in attempting to get into some challenging colleges such as Notre Dame and
1: MIT? Okay, tricky question. Um, so the first part of the question was, which one is better? And I would say that I couldn't really make that assessment because it depends. <laughs> um, in some states where they offer this kind of dual enrollment program, it could be a great pathway to a cheaper education and a faster education at potentially um, the flagship institution in that state or at the state institution. So that can be dual enrollment can be a really good choice for some students depending on where they want to go. For students targeting some of the most selective schools in the country, and I would put both Notre Dame and MIT in that pool, especially MIT, dual enrollment is frequently not the best way to go. Um, And the reason for that is because... Generally speaking, the toughest curriculum is often the one that is offered in the school. So if you are in a school where they have AP courses, or they do a full diploma IB program, that is generally going to be preferred to taking courses doing dual enrollment courses, which for better or worse, are sometimes viewed as slightly less than at the more selective levels. So if your child is targeting those types of schools, I would, stay, I would say that you're probably better off, he's probably better off shooting to do go to the highest level available at his high school in all five major subjects, math, science, English, history, and foreign language. And if APs are it, then that's what I would encourage him to do. Um, If they have the IB program, which you didn't mention, so they probably don't. The key there is you want to do the full diploma. If you're going to do IBs, you want to do the IB full diploma, not just a couple of IB classes here and there. Um, So again, like dual enrollment can look really great and really exciting, but it, it will really depend on the schools that you're applying to. And if you're shooting for that more selective level, not generally what I would advise. All right, Shannon, thank you so much for being here today, as always. You're so welcome. You're a perfect partner for these um, question and answer sessions. Um, I want to thank all of you for submitting your questions. Please submit more. Um, We want them. We want to answer them on the show. Um, Next week, Ian is hosting. If you're interested in the military academies, he's talking about the timeline. We're talking about building a preliminary college list, and we're doing part two of our series on financial aid award letters. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific and 4 p.m. Eastern.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.